Welcome to Transparency with Diana B, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. In this podcast, we explore some of the deepest struggles and hardships that many advisors face and bring these issues out into the open so that others may find healing. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to overcome the stresses and anxieties as Diana draws from years of expertise and guest experts to manage the personal challenges of advisors. Hello and welcome to Transparency with Diana Britton. Today's guest is Dr. Alden Cass. Good morning, Diana. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, Eric. How are you? Very good. I'm I'm still excited from the last podcast, and now we got another one right now. And you've brought Dr. Alden Cass in today. Why don't you tell us why? Yeah, uh, Dr. Alden Cass is a licensed clinical psychologist and performance coach who specializes in treating financial advisors and helping them improve their on-the-job performance. He also co-authored the book, Bullish Thinking, The Advisor's Guide to Surviving and Thriving on Wall Street. Um, he is a, The name of his coaching firm is Competitive Street Consulting. Um, he, Much like on the show Billions, he uh, goes into hedge funds, uh, broker-dealers, financial advisors, work with them on sales performance, segmenting their books, uh, coaching them um, on business metrics. Um, for those of you who are new to the podcast, um, each episode focuses on a personal development issue facing financial advisors. Guests join me to talk about their own experiences dealing with the struggle. And really, these are things that impact everyone, not just advisors. Uh, my name is Diana Britton. I'm the managing editor here at wealthmanagement.com. This podcast is going to be a little different. Uh, Dr. Cass is not a financial advisor himself here to talk about his own struggles, but rather he's an expert in all things mental health and will be talking to him, to us about his experiences working with advisors. Um, as a graduate student, uh, Dr. Cass conducted a clinical survey of the mental health of Wall Street's advisors. Conducted in 1999, the study, which is called Casualties of Wall Street, examined nearly 50 registered reps and found that nearly 23% of them exhibited significant signs of clinical depression, while another 36% showed mild to moderate symptoms. Interestingly, Cass says it's, it, is, it also revealed that million-dollar producers were the most dysfunctional when it came to mental health, as they were the most prone to burnout. Dr. Cass, thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure to be here. In 2001, your, uh, or in 1999, I guess, your research found that the job was stressful, uh, but it's still stressful. Uh, a FlexShare survey, a recent uh, FlexShare survey found that in 2018, advisors' stress levels were 23% higher than national norms. Interestingly, for male advisors, it was even more pronounced. Their stress levels were 26% higher than the national norm for men while female advisors' stress was nearly 18% higher than the national norm for women. Some of the causes cited uh, in the study were political and market uncertainty, regulatory changes and compliance concerns, the pressure on fees and margins. Um, I mean, so what are some of the top factors that you're seeing in your practice causing advisors' stress and burnout these days? Well, I think that you know what's interesting if we just first start with the study in and of itself, 
you know, what my study showed was that when I surveyed people in 1999, that was a, a time in our history of financial history where the markets were actually smoking hot. People were making a lot of money and people had very, you know, high hopes for making more money. And, uh, and that's where we found 23% diagnosable with clinical levels of major depression. So, you know, I didn't do a study in 2007, 2008 during the mortgage crisis. You can only imagine what that number went to. Yeah. And, you know, we're at a different plateau level now um, where we don't have data on how people are doing um, emotionally. However, you know, it, it's safe to assume that if things were pretty rough for those top performers in 1999 when things were great, that with all this uncertainty going on, with all the regulatory concerns, the, um, the, the uncertainty with the political nature of the world, our global economy, how that's affected things, uh, the tweets from Donald Trump, and how that's affected market gyrations and market corrections on a daily basis sometimes, um, and, and really how this has affected the bottom line of a lot of producers who may not be producing as much or as well as they used to, uh, but their broker dealers expect them to. And it's that differential where, you know, a broker feels like they're being held to a standard that they used to be held, uh, and not being able to achieve that anymore. Uh, that's causing a lot of stress and probably a lot of uh, disappointment and apathy within the ranks of financial advisors. Yeah. Um, I was watching a lot of Saturday Night Live sketches of financial advisors over the years. And oftentimes they show the guy jumping out of a window. You know, that's sort of um, the, the picture that America has of financial advisors is stressful. Um, are advisors afraid of a recession right now? Uh, you know, uh, I would say that, you know, the mark, the investors and the advisors right now are just a bit less confident than before in terms of where this market's going. You know, there's a lot of things with the U.S. and China trade war and uh, a lot of political stuff going on that makes them a little wary and un uncertainty about where the Fed's going to go with interest rates and and. All of these things affect our markets, including those Trump tweets that I mentioned before. And this affects people's perceptions uh, and emotions subsequently about where things are going to go. So I don't see them at panic levels. A lot of my advisors are, are much more like, okay, we have our clients' money diversified. This is why we do this. Um, we, we have good money managers. We've done our due diligence and we've been through this before we'll get through this again and you know despite all of those macro indicators that seem to be collecting all at once which are is definitely making them a little bit more nervous and less confident uh in what's going to happen i don't think people are calling for a recession imminently i think that maybe they're like okay let's just make sure everything is solid and we have to hold our investors hands right now mm -hmm. that's their job is and purpose true purpose right now is to keep their clients from panicking and letting emotion drive decisions that have been made years ago about solid decisions um, and maintain a long-term investment strategy. Yeah, that's, that's despite good. market gyrations and you know Trump tweets. Yeah, um, yeah, they're getting it from all sides. Um, I know you've said that you, the market is kind of like a mood disorder in a sense. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, if you think of what like bipolar disorder is, manic depression, 
people may know of it is where, you know, there's irrational, exuberant highs where things are grandiose, everything is unbelievable, and people are excessive in nature and high risk takers. Uh, they think that they have the Midas touch. That's kind of like a mania. Uh, and then the extreme opposite is severe depression, you know, you know, where you're really at the bottom of the barrel and empty and hopeless and feeling worthless. And the markets tend to do that. People, both investors and financial advisors, their moods actually can perpetuate the ups and downs of the market. And it just makes sense because, you know, when there's fear and panic, the market drops mm -hmm. very rapidly. And you see that on a daily basis with these Trump tweets or anything, any news about China can really send the markets tumbling like 300 to 400 points in the Dow a day, which then leads people to want to sell and panic ensues. And only the emotionally disciplined trader or advisor knows that you buy the, you buy the fear and you actually look at that as a buying opportunity for solid companies, solid ideas, solid investments, and you don't panic. But a lot of people do. And when things get bad for a, a prolonged period of time, then people start to get down and then people take money out of the market. So it, it becomes a vicious cycle. And when things are really good and things are on a huge tear where every day your, your account seems to be rising, all of a sudden that perpetuates itself because then brokers and advisors get out there more and they're hustling more and they're pitching ideas to clients more. And that drives their interest to spending more and giving more of their investment and retirement income to an advisor. So it, it's, it's all dependent on the emotion of the advisor as well as the investor. But emotion stems from the individual's perception of how things are going, good or bad. Do you think there's more pressure on advisors that are at the wirehouses to perform these days than other channels? Well, certainly, because there's more accountability. Like they're, they're occupying a seat. And, and the, a lot of these banks and, and wirehouses are, are bottom line oriented and results oriented. And if you're not making their, their bottom line to sit there, they'll find somebody else that will. And I think a lot of people have been feeling that strain, you know, of having to answer to a higher force and go up the food chain and, and have people, you know, monitoring their performance. And that's why sometimes, you know, the, the, the RIAs who are more independent have less of that pressure because it's self-induced pressure mm. to perform versus, right. you know, from above and having to answer to somebody. I just wanted to back up a little bit. Um, when we were talking about the vicious cycle, um, you know, it's, it's, it can be a vicious cycle between the advisor and the client, right? Where the advisor's having a lot of, if they're having a lot of negative feelings, they're, keep, they're, they're awake at night, they're worried about the markets or um, about their business and whatnot. That feeds into the client relationship. And, um, and then if the client's not happy, the advisor... There's even more um, not happy, right? Well, the advisor would be more hesitant to actually answer the client's angry phone calls, right? And therefore, would be more hesitant and you know not not have a strong conviction in their original investment hypothesis or thesis. So, you know, a lot of times, like you know, the apprehension of the advisor and the conviction of the advisor is the crucial element in that advisor-client relationship because that's what. The client needs, even when they're anxious or overwhelmed or angry at the advisor, what that client needs is kind of like what my clients need when they come to me, which is someone to set them straight, some someone to 
draw them a straight line when there's ambiguity and all this grayness and uncertainty and say, this is what we're going to do. This is the steps we're going to take. Here's the best case scenario. Here's the worst case scenario. And here's the most likely outcome. And here's how we're going to get there. And I've got your back. That's what they need to hear. And that's the role of the advisor. It's much like being a financial therapist to their clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what, what are some of the mental health issues that advisors are struggling with uh, these days? Well, it's probably very similar to the painful ones they were experiencing in 99 when I did my study, which was anxiety, emotional exhaustion, uh, burnout, uh, mild to moderate levels of depression. Um, and all of that, you know, what we found then was actually dealt with on a daily basis by what we call a defense mechanism called depersonalization. So the people who were making the most money at the time of my study in 99 also had the highest levels of depersonalization, Mm. despite having the highest levels of emotional exhaustion, anxiety, depression, and burnout. So what that means is, is that depersonalization is a means of treating clients like they're a means to an end and actually becoming more emotionally calloused and emotionally unavailable to anyone around you. So this could play out in terms of client relationships as well as relationships with family members and spouses. Um, so, But they did this because of the painful emotion. Mm-hmm. And it's like an unconscious process that actually comes out when you're overwhelmed and you don't have any insight into what you're feeling. And so this is a byproduct of it and that was that the top people were experiencing back then to cover for that those painful emotions um, in addition to people who were making the most money at the time of the study they also had the fewest hours of, of sleep per night um, which was also counterintuitive in terms of physical health um, emotional health all not good stuff right. so the the irony of all this, and, and this is the sad truth, is that those people in an eight-month follow-up, 25% of those people were no longer working in their jobs. Wow. Um, so The highest producers. Yes. So there's either, we can only speculate, but there, there were either instances where they made very bad mistakes because of lack of sleep or emotional exhaustion or burnout. They, they burned out and flamed out of their jobs. They... they cost themselves money, they did something illegal, anything could have led to that, um, that cause for them to just ev- evaporate from their position. Um, but I think it's a, a cautionary tale about, you know, there has to be a middle area in terms of awareness and insight into what you're feeling, because that plays out in a client advisor relationship. Like if you're depersonalized, you can't appreciate or connect with your client and, and, be that financial therapist when things are ambiguous, when things are uncertain, and you can't give them the client-centered service that they deserve and are actually feeling that they're entitled to based on what they're paying for fees. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's just, it's so hard in this industry because there's so much focus on production and getting, you know, to be a billion dollar firm and growing your practice and professional development uh, there's not a, a lot of personal development um, of these people. Um, what are some of the coping mechanisms that advisors use? Well, the one I just told you about depersonalization is mm-hmm. one of the the ones that they use without realizing that they're using. Um, but you know, there are adaptive 
uh, coping mechanisms and strategies, and there are maladaptive ones. So you you could see many that some ironically, or, or I wouldn't use the word ironically, um, some advisors very negatively actually still smoke cigarettes and they take smoke breaks outside and uh, others, these are all the negative ones. They, they still dip uh, and use tobacco uh, and all of these things uh, lead to potential physical problems, problems with insomnia, not sleeping at night, uh, agitation. Uh, a lot of them, I wouldn't say actually back up, no, not a lot of them, but some of these individuals use coping mechanisms like smoking pot at night to relax their mind, um, not being aware of the longer term effects in terms of apathy and uh, lack of focus and concentration the next day and the potential for depression as a result of smoking. Um, they use edibles the same way, um, thinking that it's less harmful, but yet it has the same consequences. Um, alcohol has always been a staple within the industry right. from a social standpoint as well as a networking standpoint. I don't know that that needle has changed over the years mm -hmm. very much, and I still think it's a staple uh, for better or worse. But you know that le alcohol is a depressant and can lead to uh, problems with performance the next day as well as addiction. Um, and then, uh, you know, a, a change in the last 10 to 15 years has been probably more the of the addition of uh, prescription medication abuse as opposed to what we used to see, which was more like, you know, cocaine use and, and, and amphetamine use. You know, now it's more prescription abuse. And, you know, this, these are things like painkillers, like opiates, uh, which can cause very, very serious uh, problems in terms of addiction, uh, potentially overdosing. Um, and a, a lot of these things even happen innocently from, you know, muscle aches and back aches because some of these guys are weekend warriors and, and play football and, and other sports and get injured. And they, it, what starts out innocently as, you know, uh, medicine to actually treat a back pain leads to a permanent addiction where they can't make it through a day of work without it. Um, hmm. Addition to Adderall, things like a stimulant like that, which is used to try to maintain their focus and concentration for long periods of time so that they can, in their minds, maintain optimal performance. But this leads to, you know, an increase in like, uh, you know, blood pressure and, and that problem sleeping at night because it's hard to turn their brains off. Um, actually makes them feel more amped up and, and agitated on occasion as well. Uh, all the way to things to also put them to sleep at night like benzodiazepines like Xanax and Clonopin, which are widely prescribed as a sleep aid to help people turn their brains off. These are addictive and they are potentially uh, very difficult to get off of and make you feel hungover in the morning. And, and, and it's hard to start your day and be a top performer when you feel that way. And, you know, so that's a collection of the negative coping skills that some individuals, unfortunately, do gravitate towards in order to survive. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to thrive or last long if they continue on that path. Um, but the positive ones that I see, I mean, I, some, of, some of my top advisors who have really made it big in this industry and made it big in their careers and have become very happy with both their quality of life outside of work, but also within work, are really ones that dedicate their time to deliberate practice strategies, which, which means like waking up in the morning and not checking their email first thing, 
they actually have rules about that. They're very disciplined about getting up and doing exercise of some sort, whether it's to go to Orange Theory or Soul Cycle, one of these classes or Barry's Boot Camp, and they really make themselves focus on their health as a primary feature in the morning, knowing that when they get to work at a certain time, they're going to start with the Wall Street Journal or Barron's and really start to look at the research and, and focus on their clients. But before then, they own that time and they are in charge of their day. They do meditation. They do yoga. Um, some of them they're using to go to sleep at night, these apps called Mind Space, Headspace. Yeah. Um, I teach them progressive muscle relaxation exercises in my office that I use with athletes in professional sports to help them turn off the noise in their head and reboot their minds. Um, so those are a lot of different strategies, including you know having those outlets, those recreational outlets and hobbies like playing tennis on weekends, golf, basketball leagues at night. And this is what people do to survive and in a healthy way. In addition to taking vacations, in yeah. a, you know, that's also a, a good one. Yeah, uh, I need to download one of those meditation apps myself. <laughs> um, for I, I know that you talked about one of the problems that you're seeing is advisors feeling purposeless. Um, how, how, do you, how are you seeing that uh, play out and what do you tell them to overcome that? Well, you know, when I when I say that, I think of some individuals who have come in and said that they have trouble getting out of bed in the morning, feeling like, you know, what's the point? What's the real value I'm bringing to the day? I mean, you know, my money, all my clients' money is in a, you know, in an investment vehicle. I just want to be not bothered today. And, you know, the markets are changing, ever-changing, minute to minute. And there's always a potential tweet out there that could upset the apple cart. And, you know, that is a, a responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility that every advisor has to take in terms of why they wake up every morning, um, you know, which is, you know, that you are responsible for your client's money. And in order for you to be responsible for their money, you have to be responsible for yourself. And that's why starting your day with those proactive activities, the deliberate practice activities of getting yourself in, in bringing your A game getting yourself into a routine and habits that are effective for success, that allows you to have a purpose so that when you start your day at either 8 o'clock or 9 a.m. and you get to the office, you could field your client's calls, which are either anxiety-filled or filled with anger or frustration, and you could handle it with an emotional discipline that will allow them to believe that you have their best interests at heart and that you have the conviction in your long-term investment strategy for them that, and their money is safe. So you need to be mindful every day that your purpose is to be their financial therapist. It's to be their guide through all of this uncertainty, all of this ambiguity that this global economy has created with all of this technology and the political uncertainty that seems to be unwinding every day. You know, this is your purpose, just like it is for me. You know, I have to create a treatment plan that works for my clients when they're nervous and anxious. I have to get up every day with the same purpose that you all do because you're in charge of their money and you have to give them clarity about all of these very complex investment decisions that they're unaware of. And they're, they're fearful, much like my clients are fearful. And so you can do a lot of good for your clients by actually helping them be reassured that you have their best interests in heart and you have the right answer. To their questions. Yeah, there's a lot of purpose in that. Um, 
you know, 15 years ago, there was sort of the stigma associated with mental health. And a lot of people on Wall Street were afraid to pick up the phone and call a therapist. Uh, but now a lot of people go to therapy. It's very common. Um, there's not that same stigma, right? Uh, I mean, not in my opinion. I think it's it's really, um, since 9-11 has really improved drastically in terms of for the removal of that stigma. And, you know, in after 9-11, it was my mission to actually remove that stigma of mental health on Wall Street uh, because it was highly prevalent when I was doing my research in 1999. Uh, sure. And it's really uh, since since then, you know, I think it's been more okay for these individuals uh, to admit weakness and and to actually go out and seek the advice of therapists and coaches and psychiatrists and you know treat addiction because you know people understand that it's way more normal and more common than people once thought um, and. You know, there have been a lot of changes in the industry which have really signaled that trend um, with the, you know, an addition of outside outsourced resources like employee assistance programs um, that are attached to these large corporations or banks that, you know, basically offer these mental health services as an outsourced option um, that are covered by their company. Um, and, you know, they do sometimes wellness workshops. Um, to, you know, basically say to people, it is okay to have issues. Um, although there, you know, there's still a mild to moderate paranoia about admitting any of this, uh, you know, on Wall Street still, but it's definitely improved since 1999. That's a good positive, positive trend. Um, mm -hmm. So when we see advisors, we're often at conferences and industry events. And to us, they seem like pretty happy people. They've got you know, a lot of them have these lifestyle practices or coasting along. They've got a lot of perks to their job. People don't really feel sorry for them, but that's not really an accurate picture, right? Well, no, I mean, it's accurate that people don't feel sorry on Main <laughs> Street for Wall Streeters, but the reality is, is that that's because there's a lot of misinformation about Wall Streeters. You know, people on Main Street just watch movies and believe that those movies are, you know, the, the prototypical depiction of what it is to be a financial advisor on wall street or an investment banker or a trader. And it looks very lavish and, and amazing and Jordan wild. Belfort, yeah. Right. Right. It looks like the most amazing, you know, trip of your life. Um, however, when you're in my office, you get to see the real emotion and the humanity of the individuals and, and the broken marriages and the drug addiction and the depression despite making money. You come to realize that money certainly doesn't buy happiness. And that is the truest thing. And, and sometimes having a lot of money and losing it is worse than not having money to begin with, um, a large sum to begin with. Um, so, you know, it, it's people when they fall from grace, they can fall really hard. And, and it, it's, a, it's a long drop uh, when things go south. For a lot of individuals who are type A individuals who are used to being only successful, and then they have their first big break um, where they, they're losing for the first time and they don't have the coping skills to handle it. Um, and you know, in some ways, you know, people who have had bumps in their life are better prepared and more resilient when things go wrong than some people who have never had these bumps before. Besides these employee assistance programs and 
you know, the some of the well-being resources at the wirehouses and employee firms. What other resources are there out there for advisors uh, struggling with mental health and, um, you know, some of these issues? You know, I mean, especially the guys that are in the independent firms, in the RAAs. They don't have an employee. They don't have a bank that they work for. Right, right. right. Well, I mean, listen, it, it, it's as is anything, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're you're hearing it from me that like you have an insurance plan more than likely that offers providers that offer mental health in your area, whether it's psychiatry um, or therapy. And, you know, there are treatment facilities that do take insurance for addiction. Um, that are out there. You just have to Google search them. But, you know, a lot of people, you know, just like the people who come to me that don't work for these uh, wirehouses, uh, Google search for, you know, the specialty that you're looking for. And if you could, you know, uh, it's, it's, it, it doesn't need to be a luxury item. It's something that you should prioritize, uh, you know, in terms of your own mental health and taking action um, and making it a priority so that you can be the captain of the ship for your clients when the seas are rough and you have to be emotionally disciplined in order to get there. And, you know, that's, that's what I do with my clients, um, is teach them how to be emotionally disciplined when things are rocky so that they can then impart that same type of role for their clients when things are rough. Do you have any other advice for advisors who may be struggling with mental health issues, you know, besides sort of the resources, but just, how can they deal with it? Any other advice on that? Well, again, there, there's it's about perspective, and it's about finding the appreciation of the things you do have in your in your life. And you know, I have uh, a, a particular advisor comes to mind who once said to me something to the effect of, "Like, you know, I I, I really don't like what I'm doing, but you know," and then I'm like, "But you're traveling all over the world, and." You know, you get to do X, Y, and Z and take your family on trips, business trips, and you can, uh, you know, go surfing when you're there. And, and he's like, you know what? I, that's true. And, and despite the fact that he hated like dealing with people so regularly and dealing with regulatory tape and compliance issues, and that was driving him nuts, like he actually was, had to take the moment to think about the small things that he appreciated from his job. Um, and that the job afforded him, like the fact that he could take his kids to school in the morning and not have to race to his desk and, and clock in. And, and sometimes we forget these things that you can actually create your own morning and set your own rules. And that can make people feel better knowing that they have some control over very, you know, again, when you're working with the markets, it's a very powerless position you're in. You know, you're at you're at the mercy of a lot that can go wrong from a global standpoint um, and a domestic. And, you know, you might have all the right intentions or have the greatest intelligence out there in finance, but it might not matter. So taking control over things that you can actually control for, like practicing good habits and getting into routines that are established daily, those are the things that you have to do to be successful and to not get into funks in the first place and appreciate the small things in your career that, you know, you know, work to live, not live to work. That should be the mantra. Mm. Yeah. There are lots of, a lot of things to be said about running your own business yes. and, uh, in this industry, that's a, a big positive. Um, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Cass. I really appreciate it. This was very helpful. I'm so happy to be here and I hope that, you know, anyone who hears this can really take action and, and do something 
never has to get too bad before you can take action. You, the earlier you get to these types of problems, the quicker there's a solution. There were some great takeaways here. If you have a struggle and wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at transparencywithdianab at gmail.com. And Dr. Cass, one of the great things that you do is you have this workshop called the Psychology of Financial Advice in Reaching the Optimal Performance Zone. If someone's interested in that, how can they reach out to you? Um, probably the simplest way would either be through my website at draldencast.com or uh, at draldencast at gmail.com. They can reach out and ask me any questions they have about anything, and I'd be happy to help. That's great. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Thanks for having me. Diana, thank you. This was an amazing podcast. Dr. Cass, I learned a ton. I had no idea uh, of all the struggles and how much uh, the how much pressure they're under. I mean, I, I figure they're under pressure, but it, it seems like there's a, a great deal out there. So thank you so much for your time. And thank you all for listening to the Transparency Podcast with Diana Britton. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Diana comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening today. For everyone at wealthmanagement.com, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Transparency with Diana B podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding your particular situation.